Humans are wired for progress. And when you're not making progress, it's just not fun anymore. But when I started to look for the new, to explore the things that actually had never interested me before, but were starting to compel me in weird ways, that's when my life really started to change. And you know, that's what we all need to be paying attention to. Hello, and welcome to Working It from the Financial Times. I'm Isabel Berwick. The year's drawing to an end and work is winding down. A lot of us are looking forward to spending some time away from work and with the family. As the balance of our lives shifts just for a week or two, some of us might start wondering, should I make this change a little more permanent? The deeper we get into our careers, the more we think about retirement, but it's not an easy thing to get to grips with. Our jobs are part of what defines us, and letting go of them can be very tough indeed. But retirement doesn't have to mean looking after the grandkids and spending time in the garden. It can also be an opportunity to keep contributing professionally and recasting your life on your own terms. The voice you heard at the top of the show was Arthur C. Brooks. Here he is in his own words. I'm a professor at Harvard University and a columnist at The Atlantic, where I write about the science of happiness. Arthur is one of the world's preeminent thinkers on the relationship between work and happiness. We spoke about why letting go of our careers can be such a wrench and what older workers can do that their younger selves couldn't. His work is all about finding happiness and fulfillment. So I asked him, has he cracked the code himself? Not definitively, for sure. I mean, that, the, the biggest misconception about happiness is that it's a destination. It's actually a direction. You can't get happy. You can get happier. And this is an important point. A lot of people say, I just want to be happy, but they're asking for something that's impossible and wouldn't even be good. That would mean eliminating negative emotions, which keep you alive and safe. They would mean eliminating bad experiences from which you grow and learn. And so the result is that what we really need is to adjust our expectations about what it's all about. And that starts with me. For the longest time, I said I wanted to be happy. And I've actually come to understand through the science and from my own work, my own research, that the goal is actually to make progress, not to get to some mythical end state this side of heaven. I'm a big fan of your book, From Strength to Strength. And in it, you talk about dividing our working life up, you know, sort of pre-50 and after 50. Could you sort of outline that general theory for our listeners? Because this is an episode about retirement or approaching retirement. So for older listeners, I think this is important. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've done in my research is I've studied people over the trajectory of their careers. And I've noticed that a lot of people get incredibly frustrated because they notice when they're still pretty young that they're burning out, losing focus. They're not on their game, as it were, even in their 40s, but certainly their 50s. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that having to do with what the great British social psychologist Raymond Cattell called the difference between fluid and crystallized intelligence. Fluid intelligence requires working memory and innovative capacity and individual focus. And it's what you have a lot of in your 20s and 30s. It makes you good at what you do, but it doesn't last. It tends to peak in your late 30s or early 40s and then start to decline. And so what made you really good at your career early on isn't something that, that persists. And that's sort of the bad news. The good news is there's a second kind of intelligence that, that increases in your 40s and 50s and 60s and stays very high well into old age called crystallized intelligence. That doesn't require working memory, thank God, um, because we, things get harder to recall. It doesn't require this indefatigable focus or even innovation exactly. What it requires is pattern recognition, 
teaching capacity and the ability to recognize quality in others. In other words, you're good at building teams. You're better at being a manager. You're better at using metaphor and teaching people how to do things. And that's the second phase of the best careers to move from the individual problem-solving cowboy to the great professor later on, whatever that means in your specific profession. Did you come to this because of your own personal experiences? Yeah, I was noticing that I was just not, I didn't have the same kind of energy, nor was I making the same sort of progress as I was moving through my 40s. First, I was a professor and I was doing, you know, highly mathematical analysis as an economist. And then I went into becoming a, a CEO, but I was kind of a, a lone wolf type of CEO given the business that I was in. And I noticed it was getting harder and less fun. So I started to do the research. You know, I was frustrated about it. My wife finally said, don't you have a PhD for a reason? I mean, you're a behavioral scientist, right? Why don't you treat yourself a little bit. And so I did. And I found a lot of these theories and ideas, and I found a lot of evidence in the neuroscience literature about the structure of the brain as well. And I started to apply the the teachings to myself. And I found that my life was starting to change. I, I wound up retiring as a CEO, as a matter of fact, pretty young when I was 55. And I moved back into the world of academia. I, I set out to be kind of a public teacher. And so I teach, I'm called a professor of practice now. And that means is the world is the classroom. And I have to talk about science in a way that 500,000 people a week can read about it, not 14. And it's a different set of skills, but I have them now. And I wouldn't have been able to do it in my early 30s. I'm much better at it than I was before. And I'm here's the thing, Isabel, I'm happier. I'm so much happier because I'm finally in the groove and I find myself getting better at this. And I probably will for couple of decades. You must still come across a lot of people, particularly men in their 50s and 60s, who still have those big jobs. What is the biggest worry that they confide in you? Is it loss of status? Is it loss of purpose? What's holding them from making a move? Number one is they're not getting better. But number two is that they're worried because they don't like it. And they don't know what else to do. They're unhappy, but they don't know how to be happier. They've geared their entire lives around their professional strength and credibility and reputation and prestige and status. And they're not getting better at their jobs anymore. They don't like their jobs. They're not as interested as they were before, but they don't know what else to do. They don't know how to change their jobs. They don't know how to reconnect with their families. They don't know how to make friends. They don't know how to go deeply into their spiritual lives. They don't have any of those skills. And and the reason is actually kind of simple. They have spent their entire lives learning how to be special and they've never spent a minute learning how to be happier. And so that's where I come in. I say, look, you need to understand yourself and your specific strengths. You need to understand actually what will fill you out as an entire person. You need to get away from your your dangerous success addictions and you need to reconnect with the real people in your life. And then we walk through the best ways to do that. So is there a one thing that we should do first if we're thinking about moving on to the next thing? Is there a first step that everyone should take? Well, everybody needs to pay attention to how satisfying what you're doing actually is. Because the big tell generally comes when you start to feel like it's not as fun as it used to be. The reason that a job is fun, by the way, is because you're getting better at it. Humans are wired for progress. Progress is inherently pleasant and satisfying and pleasurable. And when you're not making progress along a whole bunch of different dimensions anymore, it's just not fun anymore. But when I started to look for the new, to explore the... That the things that actually had never interested me before, but were starting to compel me in weird ways, that's when my life really started to change. And, you know, that's what we all need to be paying attention to. 
Do you think there's still a place to talk about retirement or should we retire that as a concept? Do you, do you know what I mean? The number of people who stop work at 60 or 65 still seems to be high. Well, there are a number of people that do that really well, but my guess is most of the people listening to this podcast are pretty hard on workaholic success addicts and maybe even self-objectifiers where they look in the mirror and they say, that's the CEO, that's the successful person. And those are the people that have to take retirement in an entirely different spirit and philosophy. That, these are the people that I talk to all day long. You know, these are people who come to me and say, I hit my age limit at my company and I have to step down as CEO and I'm incredibly afraid. And I say, okay, well, then you need to understand retirement is an entirely different kettle of fish. That does not mean not working. You need to work in a different way where you can set up a schedule where you're not rushed. But that's the schedule where you can take a couple of clients, sit on a couple of boards. And when you're out to lunch with somebody and you're like, I think this would be a 90-minute lunch should be pretty interesting. You can do it. When you're at the gym, you don't have to look at your watch the whole time. You say, I'm going to do a few more sets. And that not being in a hurry, that opening up the space between the things actually can be the highest quality of life change in your professional life that you've had in a couple of decades and redefine who you are to yourself because you'll start to enjoy what you're doing and, you know, rebuild in a personal way what your professional life is really all about. Arthur Brooks, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been lovely to be with you. Arthur's emphasis on happiness provides such a good model for thinking about retirement. If you're enjoying work less than you used to and find yourself wishing you were doing something else, it's worth listening to your instincts and thinking about what you want. One person who did that is Michael Skopinka. He stopped working at the FT full-time for a different kind of working life. So I um, was an FT journalist, staff journalist for 34 years, and uh, I now have a three-part life. I'm a writer, uh, including still contributing editor for the FT. I'm an executive and leadership educator, and I'm a qualified counsellor. I'm a registered member of the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy, and I specialise in career personal interfaces and retirement issues or non-retirement issues. So let's talk about the R word. Why do you think we need to retire the concept of retirement? I don't think it fits with people's lives anymore. Linda Grattan and Andrew Scott in their book, uh, The Hundred Year Life, they say the old days we had a three-part life. We had education, we had work, we had retirement. And as they say, that doesn't really fit anymore. I don't think it fits the way uh, traditional careers are going because I think when people come to the end of a traditional career, they still have possibly many years ahead of them, and still a desire to do something. Uh, And something else I think that's worth mentioning is I think it doesn't particularly fit women's careers and women who've had children because uh, I think for many of them there's a great opportunity as children become more independent to start to assume the leadership roles and the bigger roles that maybe they didn't take earlier on. Gosh, you could be talking to me there, Michael. I am talking to you. So there must be a lot of people in their 50s and 60s listening to this. In fact, I met a friend last week who said this to me. You know, I haven't retired because I just don't know what to do next. What would you say to them? I wrote a a column for the FT in which I said it was time to retire the R word. And uh, there were a lot of comments. There were over 100 comments and there were more on LinkedIn. And what became clear to me is some people agreed with me, some people disagreed with me. There's no single template for this. And you cannot say what any 
group of people should do. It really is down to individuals. I, I came across people and there were people there who were quite happy to have traditional retirements. But of course, financially, you have to be able to afford that. And I think that's another issue. Uh, there might be financial needs that um, you haven't thought about. So I don't think there's a single template. Um, there are only two things I would say that universally should apply to everybody. The first is physical fitness. None of us know what's going to happen to our health. But I think the one thing that is worth investing in throughout your life, but certainly as you get closer to what was once considered to be a retirement age, is exercise. That is a huge investment you can make. The other thing which has become clear to me talking to people, reading their comments, I think it's absolutely vital that while you're in the throes of your primary career, that you don't make that all-consuming. I think it's really important to ensure, and it takes some discipline really, to ensure there are other aspects to your life. I'm very struck by the number of people who come to the end of their main careers and say, well, I have no interests, I have no hobbies, there's nothing I'm interested in. I think we should all try to avoid that. And the other thing is to make sure that you maintain those networks of family and friends, because you're going to need that as well. And I would say those two, health and other interests and family and friends, those are the two universals. I think that applies to everybody. I think that's good life advice generally, isn't it? Probably, but I think it's good advice for for those who, um, who really have let their work dominate their life. Something else that was interesting, and uh, a few of the commentators said this, because I said, I don't believe in retirement, I believe in carrying on. And they said, well, that's all very well for knowledge workers, people who've got these high-flying jobs where you use your brain. Uh, as somebody said, if you'd been gutting fish for the last 40 years, you probably wouldn't feel that way. And generally, physical work takes it out of you. It's far harder to keep that up. And this comes back to the point I made. I don't think there's a universal template for everyone. I think one of the things that stops people from planning a life beyond a corporate job or, you know, is their fear of losing relevance. You know, you just can't think beyond. How did you think about that when you started out on your non-retirement plan? It was a big issue for me. You know, if you're a writer, you're used to, in a way, being in the public eye. You're used to making a difference. One of the saddest comments that I read in response to my article was somebody who said, now that I'm retired, I don't matter. And that doesn't matter because I didn't matter when I worked. I think we all want to matter. And there are other ways to matter. There was a letter in the Financial Times this week pointing out that, in fact, I hadn't retired. I was just uh, still getting paid for the things that I like to do and that I'm good at. And uh, the letter writer pointed out that um, she thought there was a great role for voluntary work, community work. There are many different ways to matter, but I think we all want to matter. Yeah, so we have to redefine what mattering means, essentially. And also we have to think about what matters to us. Being involved in things like executive education means I'm still in touch with younger people, some of my former younger colleagues, and just keeping in touch with and uh, keeping up with what's happening in the world. Otherwise, you can become outdated very quickly. We touched earlier on people who've been forced into retirement, you know, perhaps by sudden redundancy or a takeover. You know, you've been the CEO, the company gets taken over what's your advice for those people? Because that's the biggest shock, isn't it? It is the biggest shock. Uh, one of the things I'd say about leaving a big corporate job that you've been in for a long time is sometimes it's described as a mini bereavement. Now, I think that's slightly overdramatic, but it's a real loss. It is a loss. It's a loss of status. It's a loss of contacts. It's a loss of networking. 
And I think one of the things you need to do is acknowledge that it's a loss and accept that you've got a right to feel sad about it and also possibly angry about it if you've been forced out. And uh, one thing that does have in common with bereavement is it's not a linear process. The shock is biggest in the beginning, it then maybe goes away, but it can come back at various points. So I think the first thing is absorb the loss, acknowledge the loss. And then think, okay, well, what could I do? Because actually, there's a lot that I've done in my life. So that's the one point is to think about what to do. The other thing I think is to just bank what you've done and think whatever else happens to me now, I had that career, I did this, that is there, you've done that whatever else happens, you've got that. And I think people should take some comfort from that and some satisfaction and some pride in that before deciding what to do next. Michael, you've given me a lot of food for thought. Thank you so much for coming in. Always a pleasure to be here with you as well. Michael's clearly happy with the changes he's made to his working life, and so he should be. He's got a balanced and fulfilling portfolio of work that he enjoys. But for some people, letting go of an all-consuming job is too much to contemplate. Being in demand is great, but so is having time to do other things. Before we end, I wanted to play you a final bit of my interview with Arthur and leave you with some of his thoughts on busyness. You know, busyness is nothing more than smoking cigarettes or social media. It's the same basic thing. The other thing that we find a lot in the United States, but more and more across the pond where you are as well, is that busyness is a source of status. You know, it's funny because I've spent half my adult life in Spain. I've gone back and forth between Barcelona and the United States because of my family. And when you go to Spain and you say, I'm so busy, people are like, so what's wrong with you? You know, you're doing something wrong, you know? In the United States and, you know, and we are... we are a Britannic culture here. We get, we get all, most of our bad habits from you. We say, yeah, yeah, no, no. You want to know how, how much demand there is for me? I'm busy all the time. It's not great. I love that. Yeah, we should all be more, more Spanish. We've talked a bit in this podcast and other episodes about unretirement, which is, seems to be one of the big work trends. You know, older people are going back as consultants into workplaces right. or similar work, but on more flexible contracts. Is that helpful or, or should we be thinking more about doing new things? Well, it's helpful unless it's a way for you to not do the, the big thing that you need to do to be happy later in life or any time in life, which is reconnecting with the people in your life. Because the truth is that at any point in our life, we need to be spending more time cultivating our roots. And our roots are other people, not polishing our leaves, which is the outward perspective on ourselves, the outward image that we project onto the world. And so if you're using work as an opportunity to keep polishing your leaves as opposed to fertilizing your roots, you're going to be lonely. Retirement is hard in part because for so many people, it means letting go of something that has for a long time defined who you are. But I think what we've heard from Michael and Arthur is so instructive. If you want your retirement to mean gardening or painting or taking care of your grandchildren, it absolutely can be that for you. But it can also mean staying engaged professionally, taking on new challenges and taking time to think about what makes you happy, not what makes you look good. That's a pretty good guiding principle for the tail end of our working lives. With thanks to Arthur Seabrooks and Michael Skopinka. This episode of Working It was produced by Misha Frankel-Duval and mixed by Simon Panay. The executive producer is Manuela Saragossa and Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>